0: And welcome to Light On Light Through, episode 215, in which Cora Boulette, Joe McKinnon, and I have a wide ranging, in depth conversation about the first season of Foundation, the series based on Isaac Asimov's marvelous trilogy and subsequent novels, which just finished its first season on Apple TV a few days ago. But here's a big warning unless you have seen this first series and are familiar with Isaac Asimov's novels, maybe you don't want to listen to this podcast. On the other hand, if you don't mind spoilers, then dive right in because we're going to be talking about all kinds of things. Here you go.
1: The Light on Light Through Podcast
0: Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Levinson. This is a special episode of light on Light through usually just an audio podcast, but we're going to have video as well. And the reason why we're doing this special episode is the foundation series, the first season of it on Apple TV plus just ended a couple of days ago. So I've asked two experts in the series. That is, they didn't make the series, but they've been watching it and reviewing it and talking about it to join me in this conversation. First, Cora Bullert. I think we met, I don't know, about three or four years ago on Kindle boards. This is like one of these boards that's available for people who love Kindle books. Cora has been doing all kinds of exciting things every week she posts a list of speculative fiction links with all kinds of great urls to reviews and commentaries about science fiction she also does that with detective stories and in addition to that in her copious free time. She writes r- reviews of each foundation episode that, that are almost as long as one of Asimov's stories <laughs> uh, in that uh, wonderful series. Uh, I've known Joel McKinnon for a much shorter period of time. I noticed his podcast, "Seldon Crisis, just a few months ago. It's a wonderful podcast in which Joel not only talks about each of Isaac Asimov's foundation stories in sequence. But a real treat, Joel actually enacts the story by literally doing what in effect is a radio play of each story. And trust me, it's really wonderful. It's a great way to get into the stories if you don't know them already. And it also is just great to listen to uh, if you already have uh, read the stories, which I assume most people on planet Earth have, but who knows? All right, let's uh, begin uh, with talking about the series. And I'll just say a couple of words about what I thought about it. And then maybe Cora and Joel can say a couple of words, and then we'll get into some of the more specific aspects. Uh, In a few words, uh, I'm almost like schizophrenic about the Foundation series, because the part of it that was closest to Isaac Asimov's writings, which have been my favorite science fiction since I read it back in the 1950s and continues to be, I have mixed feelings about that. I thought some parts worked, some parts irritated me, some parts infuriated me, but there was a totally... Separate from Asimov's original story aspect to the television series, and these were the clones, the three clones who uh, form the emperor in the series referred to also as Empire. And this was something that Asimov didn't deal with at all. And I think the television series did a magnificent job in dealing with that. So let's hear what Cora and Joe briefly think of the overall series. Um,
1: well, my my impressions were similar to yours. I also loved the books for a long time. I read I read them at in my late teens. Um, I found um, I found Prelude to Foundation, which had just been been newly published at Essence Airport, where I was stuck in, after, during a stopover back in 1989, and I didn't mind the stopover on a on an airport with a non-functional air conditioning system after that anymore because the book was so good and then i read all of them and i've loved them for a long time and um it was a serious um i also have mixed feelings parts of it are very very good not necessarily the actors are almost all good especially jared harris as um as uh, harry selden who's pretty much who's pretty much seems to have been born to play harry selden and um of course um the three emperors, the three clone emperors are all good, uh, good. And um Laura Byrne, who plays uh Demerzel, is um the character he plays is male in the books, but it doesn't really matter because they are a robot anyway. And uh, she's he's actually she was I was skeptical initially, but she was is very, very good. But uh, and the whole thing looks gorgeous, wonderful uh, designs, wonderful special effects. Uh, the Clone Emperor Saga is very compelling, even though it has nothing whatsoever to do with the books. Um, the stuff which actually comes from the books, I have mixed feelings about. Again, some of it is good, good. Some of it is uh, not so good. Some of it simply completely fa- misses the what I think is the spirit and the point of the books.
2: All right. Thank you. Joel? Well, uh, Yeah, I agree with everything you guys have said. And I just want to say that for me, it it satisfied the main criteria for me. It was entertaining. It was really entertaining. Um, And I love the books. Absolutely. You know, obviously doing Selden Crisis, I've been doing a really close reading of the trilogy so far, Uh, and it's so different, but it's still very satisfying to watch. and I. I think very early when I first started watching the trailers and there was all this brothers, brother day, brother dusk, brother dawn nonsense, I thought, okay, this is not going to be the books. Uh, and so I think maybe accepting that really early helped me to to uh, embrace the TV show as it is. Uh, it's uh, there's some really interesting ideas. Oh, back to the entertaining aspect. The main thing that makes me realize that it was very entertaining is I looked forward to Thursday night, like for the last ten weeks, and yeah, you know, I couldn't wait to watch it. And I never went more than maybe an hour, you know, past when it was available before I watched it, and just ate it up. And most of them I've watched twice, <laughs> so uh, it's pretty good. Uh, and visually, especially, it's just knockout, beautiful. Uh, Trantor is just gorgeous and it looks like Trantor that I imagined, except that it's not enclosed, Uh, but they explained that um, as, you know, a simulation of the sky. Um, The, the star bridge was fantastic. I thought that was a really cool addition, Uh, obviously a technological update. Um, And uh, they, I want to talk real briefly about the imbalance that you guys noticed, Uh, you know, which I did too. Uh, the empire side of the story seems to be really, really well thought out and beautifully written, beautifully acted, uh, and you know, really compelling plot lines. And the terminus side of the story, especially, uh, seems to be kind of uh, almost uh, rushed into place. It seems in some places, uh, kind of not given as much depth of thought uh, and have a wild theory on that. I don't know if you want to get to that yet. Um, Tell us briefly. Okay. Well, there's, um, there's a Reddit theory out there that, that it has something to do with the creative differences that uh, Josh Friedman left early with. And they their theory, um, and many of these Asimov experts, on Reddit, uh, just hate the series because it's not pure like the books, and they're they're raging at Goyer, the showrunner, right, for for everything that's done wrong, uh, and they can't say that the creative differences were that Goyers were, you know, anything credit to Goyer. So um, what they've decided is that Josh Friedman came up with the Empire story, and Goyers is all the other crap. Right. (laughs) And my interpretation of it is the opposite. It it makes more sense to me uh, from listening to Goyer and reading a lot of what he's done in interviews and things. He loves the Empire side of the story and he's always talking about it. And it's where his heart seems to be. So if anything, it seems to me that it was the other way around, that the creative difference might have been Josh Friedman saying, you know, we've the heart of the story is foundation, and that's where you should put be putting the emphasis. And that wasn't happening. So anyway, that's my theory.
0: That's a good, a good theory. Let me just say a couple of things about what we've just been talking about. One, there was a literary critic who came out with a lot of books in the 1920s in England. His name was I A. Richards, I think Iva Armstrong Richards. He wrote the book called Practical Criticism, another book called Literary Criticism. The reason why I'm mentioning him is one of the fundamental principles in Richard's approach to literature, which, of course, could apply to movies and television series, is that you should never pay attention to what the creator says, that the creator is an unreliable (laughs) witness, even if the creator is being honest. The creator may not be aware of the unconscious things that came into the creator's work, and all too often, the Creator is not honest, and I remember even you know when the Sopranos ended with that you know wild ending, and people were saying, "What did David Chase really mean you know uh, it doesn 't matter what David Chase really meant, and David Chase himself has changed his explanation of what that ending meant now about two or three times, so I just wanted to make that general principle point. The other point has to do with something I've noticed over the years, uh, and I call it the first love syndrome. And, and what it means is I found that whenever there's an adaptation of something, wh- what people tend to love is what they have first experienced. And I I noticed this. I was at a science fiction convention, I guess oh, way back in the 1990s. And I was on a panel talking about Star Trek. And we were talking about, you know, the Star Trek, Star Trek movies. Uh, that's okay. That's, that's a good special effect there, uh, Joel. <laughs> we were talking about the Star Trek uh, movies and you know, the Star Trek original series. And somebody in the audience. He raised his hand and he said, I, 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 you, "My favorite Star Trek is Star Trek the Motion Picture. This was the first motion picture that was made of Star Trek. It's generally recognized as a complete disaster. I mean, all that was about <laughs> right? But uh, the and and it was then that I." And So I said, really? I mean, so you, uh, let me understand this. You saw the television series that was made in the sixties, and 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 then you went out to see the movie, and you liked the movie better than the television series. <laughs> and he said, no, it was the other way around. I I never saw the television series. He was a relatively young guy. The movie was my first experience, and I you know loved the movie. And somehow the television series didn't just measure up to it. So I think that what the clone story in the Foundation television series did is it got Foundation out of that first love syndrome. In other words, it provided an avenue for people to really come into the story and love it without comparing it you know, to Asimov's work. And because I honestly can't imagine anyone if the series on television were just Terminus and just Harry Seldon and just, you know, Gail, and, you know, there were some good changes. I thought it was great that Gail was a woman rather than some boring guy mathematician. But if it was just that, I think the uh, series would have been much less successful. Uh, but listen, let's, let's look at some of these specific things and some of the specific points improved or not improved. Uh, Let's start with a relatively non-controversial point. Uh, And I know that uh, Cor has written a a little bit about this. I've, in my reviews, expressed in general my displeasure with Demersel in the television series until the last episode where she was spectacular. And the next to the last episode, she was pretty good as well. Uh, But the reason why I didn't particularly like it is, in asimov's work and, and obviously De Merzel represents the fusion of asimov's robot stories and his foundation stories but asimov took much more care in showing how the robots struggled often to make decisions you know weighing the three laws and so on so i would view De Merzel as a success in the television series at the end but not a particularly good, vibrant, exciting character up until those last two episodes.
2: What do you think?
1: Um, uh, oh, oh, sorry. You go ahead. <laughs> uh,
2: I was just going to say, um, I think part of it is uh, they didn't have the rights to the robot series. So there is a lot of the real background that goes into who Demerzel was in the books that they couldn't cover. Uh, The the background of it, the foundation of it, you know, the three laws, because there's no, there's very little mention of the three laws in Foundation, even in the prequels or the sequels. It's they talk a lot about the zeroth law, but very little on the on the three laws. So I I think there may have been uh, a limitation on how much they could talk about the three laws. Uh and but they definitely could talk about or represent the zeroth law because that was introduced uh well I guess it was introduced in the robot series, but it, it was definitely emphasized in foundation as well. And
1: Robots of Dawn, I think, is the one with, uh, with the Zeroth Law. Yeah. One of the ones which came out in the 1980s.
2: That's right. Yeah, it really was um, it really came out in uh, Robots and Empire, um, where he really ah, oh, kind of solidified oh, yes. the concepts
1: was another one, yeah. yes. Another one of the 80s. Um, they were all already in place. The only one which was published after I started reading the series, so I could really read the whole thing in order, the only one that came after was Forward, the Foundation, which I read after I'd read the others. some in a somewhat little different situation because the 1980s sequels had already been published by the time I discovered the series. Anyway, I liked the actress Laura Byrne a lot. I was a little bit skeptical because... Um, Demersel De or Daniel, as um, he or she is called in the books, is a very iconic character character, and uh, is male in the books. But on the, on the other side, he, she, he or she or they are robots, so it really doesn't matter. I mean, we've seen rip off her face. Uh, her face, she can put on a different one. It, well, her gender doesn't matter at all. And the actress does a fine job... Um, Job being at once very robotic and synthetic and also, well, showing emotions. Emotions. What I didn't like was, okay, they can't mention the three laws of robotics. No problem. But maybe Demersel should follow them. Killing people is, the first law of robotics is uh, a robot may not harm a human. And Demersel harms humans. We see her early on overseeing the torture of a suspected terrorist sympathizer, okay, maybe that would still work because um, those terrorists are awful people. That could that could work with the zeros law. The zeros law means a robot has to protect humanity. And so yeah, those those terrorists killed 150 million people. So yeah, she has every so okay, I don't don't really have many issues with her torturing or oh, she's not actually torturing, she's just standing by while someone else is torturing terrorist sympathizer. But um, she kills two people in the course of the series. First, uh, Sefer Halima, this um, priestess from this um, from this weird um, subplot I didn't like at all, this religion subplot, especially since it went on to, for way too long about um, religious schism in, in a kind of important religion in the empire, because um, the book's, Don't pay a lot of attention to religion and have a very very cynical view of religion. And uh, the series took it all very seriously. It's oh, it's and um, made and pretended this religion which we've never heard about. And um, it does not. It is um, inspired by various pagan, by various modern neo-paganism, triple goddess religions. But it's not a real religion. Also, the people don't have any sympathies for a religion which kills a lot of its worshippers via. a Grueling, murderous pilgrimage. Sorry, I didn't like these people. People, <laughs> no. I didn't like Zefra Halima. The actress was wonderful. Her name is Tnia Miller, and she's a British actress, and she was great. But I didn't like the character. But still, the kills her, and um, she can't and that she shouldn't. Of course, she's obviously very highly conflicted about it. But um, it's difficult to explain that she kills her on the order of the Empire. And it's difficult to explain that away with the Zero's law. Law, and later on she kills who's absolutely the absolutely harmless and probably would have been good for the Empire, Brother Dawn, who is an impure clone. I mean, okay, we are talking spoilers here, so we should maybe put in a warning, warning. And that's absolutely she's obviously highly conflicted. She rips off her face afterwards, but it's still she's a uh, she violates the first law and not in service of the Zero's law, and. Uh, she also says that she's programmed above all to um, obey the empire. This is not at all in the books. Books. Uh, she will, she will uh, Demoiselle will obey the empire in the books and also is an imperial advisor, but only um, because um, because it helps humanity. And in the books Demoiselle, of course, also helps to set up the foundation and courts um, and manipulates Harry Seldon into, well, making a bit more than theory of his, of his work. And I hope we will get to see that eventually. But yeah. yeah, the actress was great. I would have liked a bit more adherence to the actual laws. Well,
0: yeah, I, I agree I agree with a lot of that. You know, the Zero floor obviously was a major change just in the robot stories. It's the utilitarian principle of the greatest good for the greatest number. But, but it was never clearly the case in the zeroth law that it was okay to kill people i mean it, it was implied they don't. That, <laughs> yeah and, and so i agree that uh you know the the original you know r daniel oliva who became demerzel would have probably figured out a way to do what needed to be done on behalf of the zeroth law without killing two people. And 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 that, I think, is part of the problem. And and this actually gets back to Joel's point. One of the problems that David Goyer, Goyer encountered, and there was really nothing he could do about it, is w- whatever he did, it, it, it was going to be judged by people who not only read and loved the Foundation stories, but chances are, if they loved the Foundation stories that much, they read the Robot stories. In fact, you can't read they
1: probably read everything Asimov ever wrote, or at least uh, I mean, he's <laughs> was very prolific. Not his, not all of his non, but I think I uh, read pretty much every science fiction thing he ever wrote and uh, wrote and. Um, the only, I didn't. Uh, I didn't read the Black Widows, even though my the bookshop where I bought the books had them. Because I was, always, oh, it's one of those mystery things. I'm actually sad that I didn't read them because they probably are good. But um, okay, that can't be changed. Or I could be change it if I bought them again. But okay, I,
2: I want to uh, read them. Uh, I, and, uh, and one of the fascinating.
1: reasons. Fascinating. Uh,
2: <laughs> one of the reasons I'm really interested in the Black Widower series is I, I've come to think of Asimov more and more as I've been studying foundation in depth um, as I've been understanding him as a, as a great mystery writer. He just loves to uh, hide and misdirect and, you know, keep you going on the wrong trail. And then all of a sudden like, just blow your mind by turning things over. And I think that's one of the things that is Asimovian about the series so far is the the great reveals and uh, stunning changes that you weren't expecting. Uh, And that's, I I think that's in the tradition, but I agree with all the stuff about Zero's Law, except that uh, I think we might, one thing I've noticed in the series so far is that a lot of things that seem to not make sense get explained later. Uh, And I think we might see some of that with some of these like very violent things that, Demersel's done uh, in explaining how what her reasonings were and that it might be based on zero thought. I also think that maybe we'll get, they'll get the rights to the robot series at some point and that could change things a lot as they start really introducing some of those ideas
1: and they're I probably going to have to see. To, <laughs> would love to yeah. see uh, the Daniel, Daniel Oliva and um, Elia Bailey um, body cop series. Take Laura Burn, please. I mean, she's she's she already plays around. He's great. It really doesn't matter. And I simply would love to see the scene, which is already hilarious in the original, where Elijah tries to explain that no knowing the laws does not mean justice, and uses a biblical example. You can, they can even talk about religion, which they seem to love to do. And he uses a biblical example of Jesus, Jesus and the adulteress, and um, and, uh, and is always okay. What is adultery? And what is stoning? And Elia is clearly very embarrassed to explain the whole concept. And now imagine that if Daniel were a woman and it would be even more hilarious.
2: (laughs)
0: Yeah, I I think that would definitely add an important element to Asimov's original robot stories. By the way, before I forget, I have just one other, you know, not the most profound explanation for why Demersel Killed Dawn in that scene. You, you, uh, what was also going on in that scene is dusk and day were almost they were coming to physical blows, right? And she's witnessing this. and you know her point that she has to keep Empire together she, it, it was a correct decision that by snapping Dawn's neck, she would stop the fight cold. Between dusk and day, uh, she maybe not- she should
1: have just uh, I don't know snapped uh, snapped the neck of dusk. I mean, dusk is an awful person. Yeah, is he is. Not <laughs> the previous dusk. The actor is great, but the dusk is awful. He's terrible. Well, day is is uh, well still a galactic pilot. Oh, um, are you hearing me? Um,
2: I have a, a thought on She's that.
1: Seems um, uh, sort of frozen.
0: Yeah, it's okay now. But I'm frozen this is harry seldon
1: yeah, yeah. i have a, a
2: thought <laughs> go ahead <laughs> <laughs> i have a thought on the um the killing of Don too um that just occurred to me is that uh perhaps Demerzel doesn't see dawn as fully human uh because there's a backup you know that can be re restored at any time uh and Apparently they have the memories updated constantly, so in a way it's like a a, a very a hurtful experience. But the it's it's almost like the the person that gets killed just wakes up and goes on. So yeah. maybe she sees it differently in that case. Uh, and the, also, the but that the explain, other one that doesn't explain Halima. why. She, yeah, why she killed the priestess. So with with, with Halima, this is a little harder, but. My thinking is uh, maybe it's uh, that there's a scene in uh, The Naked Sun. Uh, Remember uh, how the murder was done? Was Mm -hmm. it was it was actually performed by a robot, or not by a robot, but by a human using a part of a robot? A robot. uh, (laughs) That's yeah. There's yeah. Spoilers, spoilers. But in a way, it's kind of analogous in that she was being used as a weapon. By someone else, right? And her programming was such that she—it was stronger for her to would have been harder for her to resist it than to follow through with it. And so, but you would expect her to suffer much more. And most of the time in in uh, Asimov's stories, when a robot did something in violation of the first law or any of the laws, but especially the first law, they would get roblocked and get all confused and like a stroke victim. Right.
1: Yeah, the robot in the naked sun pretty much goes uh, goes mad, and it's barely, yeah. pretty much, barely possible to even interrogate the robot because um, he is mm-hmm. so. At first, they think it's just the robot is disturbed because he had to witness the murder. Until they figure out um, the poor robot was the murderer. Yeah,
0: yeah, and this is why that's such brilliant mystery writing because how? I mean, the whole story of the naked sun is how could a robot? Kill someone in violation of the first law. Well, the answer is you, you know, disconnect, disassemble the robot, and kill, you know, the person with the <laughs> robot's arm. And you know, this is Asimov's brilliance as a mystery writer. I just want to also underline something that that Joel said. One of the things that I really loved, especially in the last few episodes, is it was not obviously specifically what Asimov. We're wrote. having
2: some freezing problems again. Yeah.
0: Okay. All right, good. One of the things that I really uh, loved, uh, which Joel mentioned in at least the last two episodes, and it was not specifically Asimov's content, but it was Asimov's general style of putting in a twist. And then before you observed and realized what was going on, another twist came in and, and the scenes in episode nine, when, you know, Dawn is confronted by himself and, and then, uh, you know, uh, the, the people, you know, come in and, you know, within like a literally a 32nd period of time, three or four different vectors of stories intersect. And this I thought was actually the, the most Asimovian in many ways, that approach to storytelling. And and as as Joel well knows, we see this over and over again. So, you know, in in the story, you know, in, in the hunt for the second foundation and who is the mule, what Asimov does is he presents one option after another, you know, even later on, you know, the, the explanation that's satisfied. No, it's the explanation that's true. And I think that David Goyer did capture that really brilliantly in the story uh let's talk about harry selden and um first of all i agree with what cora said i don't know anyone who said otherwise that jared harris is a brilliant actor by the way his father As some people don't know, his father was Richard Harris, who himself was a a great actor. Not only that he and, and Joel might be aware of this, he had a huge hit record called MacArthur Park. Arthur Park is melting, yeah. park, Right, and yeah. <laughs> so, so Jared Harris comes from a great family. I first noticed him in Mad Men, where he. I ba- think
1: all of us first noticed him there.
0: <laughs> yeah, and he uh, he really ate up the show, you know. He, and he came in at a point where some people were getting tired of the other characters, so I think he did a. I think the acting was fabulous. But let's talk about Harry's story and in specific. The fact that he is killed in the series, uh, how he comes back, wh- what's going on with what are there two AI programs that Harry Seldon? You know, one one is on the ship uh, that that uh, Gail gets so furious with him, and you know the other is obviously on on Terminus. And and then in some ways, most significant, I think, and I think I like this change, but I'm wondering what the two of you think is, obviously, Harry Selden in the novels is just a recording, a holographic recording that he did, you know, years, centuries earlier. Here, in the television series, he's an active AI program that can have a conversation and hear what people are saying and give clever, sarcastic answers. Uh, is that a good or a bad change in Harry Seldon?
1: Well, uh, I I love the new AI uh, I Harry because he's um he's still Harry Seldon. He's very smart, like oh everything happened just like I thought it would. Wonderful. Well, he's still smug. Um, he uh, he's answer, doesn't really answer. He answers your questions on occasion, but he doesn't really answer them. Um, he, well, I mean, it's kind of nice that he actually tells him, okay, well, how can you get rid of the empire now? Because normally he' say, oh, the solution is very obvious. You know what it is. And then in the book, the first story it's actually salvaged, he says, oh, yes, he's right. The solution is obvious. <laughs> obvious, so yes. he's But he's still the kind of, uh, well, he has this kindly grandfather, Image, but he's also, and he is a. I mean, he is a grandfather in both the series and the books, which is interesting, since um, the series didn't seem to go there at first. And I'm also not still how sure how I like that bit. But he's a, he's a kindly grandfather character, character also, and also, um, also this absolutely infuriating. I'm a, infuriating. I'm not going to. I know everything, but don't think I'm going to tell you hologram. And yeah, I, I really like, like Selden and also like that. We got more of Harry Selden than we would have gotten in the books where he's basically only shows up. at a climax climax as a hologram to tell everybody what was, what just happened.
2: Yeah. Uh, I agree with everything Cora just said. Uh, he, he's amazing. Uh, it's a great performance. Well-written. Well uh, and, uh, and to me, that's the only flaw in the book Since there's not enough Harry Seldon. Uh, yeah, I wanted more of him all the time I was reading it. I was like, where is, it? is he? He isn't going to come back at the end of The Merchant Princess? Come on. What's going on?
1: Yeah. Uh, that was a <laughs> the, I actually, I had I reread that one last year for the Retro Hugo's, and I was like, where's Harry? Why where is there no Harry? Harry, I want my Harry hologram. He's supposed to show up and tell everybody <laughs> that Homer Metal is right and then... Because I completely (laughs) forgotten that he wasn't in the Also, I started this prelude, which actually is all Harry. I was always disappointed when we didn't get enough Harry later on.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah, but I just want to say, as long as we're talking about Harry, I've noticed, and I like it. uh, I don't know if you noticed this, Cora, that Joel pronounces Harry, Hari, like Hari Krishna. You know, I thought like I was listening to a George Harrison song. Uh, so, but it, but in a way that that's appropriate because there is almost a religious <laughs> yeah. aspect to having. Uh, <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah, yeah, there's a few they, of them. Kind of a cult, <laughs> even though they, they say they're not, but they kind of are.
2: <laughs> yeah, I still call them. I uh, still call God. Gail Dornick, not Gail. Uh, it's just yeah. how it how it started in my head. I can't get it out of there. It's like comes out the same way. The show. I, no. I won't let the show redefine the way they're sp- they're pronounced. Good, you
0: shouldn't. But actually, you're right. I. I mean, at least I. Pronounced her name that way, reading the books, Gal. It didn't seem like yeah, Gal. Me too. <laughs> but it was. I here I'll give uh, Goya credit, or whoever came up with this idea. It was clever taking a name that was spelled that way and not and basically making it a woman uh, called Gal, which is a feminine name. Which, by the way, I think is much better than, again, not to take another shot at Star Trek, which I also love. But now the main character in Star Trek is Michael, a a woman. I I don't know why they do that. I mean, it's like. I think it was uh,
1: was a tick of the original showrunner who's been replaced like three times. I also do episode by episode reviews, normally of Star Trek Discovery. I'm not sure if I'm going to do this season because I can't legally watch it watch it. So uh, I can, of course, watch it. We all know how this works, but um, <laughs> but I'm not sure if I'm going to do it. But uh, I think it was a little showrunner where the thing about women with men's names, but uh, I, I'm i not a huge fan of the whole concept. I mean, she's Michael so fine, but um, also because in Germany, actually, um, if someone has an ambiguous first name, then you have to add a second name, name um, which makes it clear what the gender is. So, um, so Michael as a as a Michael as a girl's name would not be would probably not be approved, or you would have to call her something like Michael Elizabeth or whatever.
0: Right, that's a good point. By the way, let me mention to our viewers and listeners that Cora is in Germany right now. Joel is in California. I'm in New York, so we don't have like a totally global. A conversation going on here but it's pretty good you know we have it's across the united states and uh in the center of europe and uh let me also mention uh i was, I was thinking about this before we started our podcast in terms of my relationship to Isaac Asimov, one of the things that I managed to do with Isaac Asimov, and we had several different things going on, I I published a book in 1982 called In Pursuit of Truth. It's a collection of essays Uh, I was just editor and I wrote one of the essays, people contributed essays on the philosophy of Karl Popper, who was an Austrian philosopher who then went to England. So what does this have to do with Germany? I decided to have two people write prefaces to the book because there were so many different issues in the book. One was Isaac Asimov. who who wrote a preface for it. And I remember I had a conversation with my publisher. I said, how much money should we offer him? You know, like $1,000 or something? And and the publisher said, no, Isaac Asimov will do anything as long as you give him some small amount of money. Offer him $100. So I was like embarrassed to offer it to him. (laughs) But Isaac said, sure, I'll do it, absolutely. <laughs> the other preface, though, was written by Helmut Schmidt, who was chancellor of West oh, Germany. Oh, uh,
1: our chancellor, yes. That's uh, right. He, was, he would have still been chancellor then. He uh, stepped oh, that- He stepped down on, uh, uh, wait a minute, uh, it was September 6, 1982. That so right. was
0: a, yes <laughs> yeah well the book was published in 1982 so i think yeah the,
1: so he would still have been chancellor at the time yeah. but it was on his way out
0: <laughs> yeah that's right so he he decides to lift himself up and write a preface to this book better than big chancellor but i've always you know had had a had a good feeling about you know the connection between asimov and and germany just because of of those those two prefaces Let's talk uh, 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 about something else in the uh, in this first season of of this. Uh, what is going to be, and I, and I certainly hope Apple does continue it for for eight seasons. And I think this is something I mentioned to Joel online. And by the way, let me just tell our viewers and listeners that uh, Joel Corr and I are continuously talking about foundation on Twitter. So I will, in the show notes, put in our Twitter handles and you can feel free to, to come in. I always thought that the first book in the Foundation trilogy, which, as I'm sure most people know, was not even written as a novel. It it was a series of stories that were originally published in Astounding magazine. Thanks, Cora. And, And then Asimov collected them and wrote a new first chapter. That, to me, although it was excellent, was the weakest of the three uh novels in the trilogy uh and and again it's not so much a shot against that first novel it's that the second novel i mean to me the the apex <laughs> of the trilogy was the general yeah. stories and the mule stories and then when
1: the mule comes in that's uh, yeah, that's okay. uh and then uh, there's a second form okay. also the first story. then i mean they only adapted the first two stories of this first book sure. The 1951 preface, which was basically the first episode, pretty much close to the first episode, except for the major terrorist attack, attack, because <laughs> nothing so interesting happens in the, the real book. It's basically just a travel Oh, look, look, uh, here's uh, Trantor. Isn't Trantor beautiful? Oh, here's Harry Selden and Gail Dornick, which is also why Gail, Gail is a walking, talking info dump in the book and uh, a cipher, even more of a. Salva Hardin has a personality, even though um Salva we never get a description. We don't know. We only know that he uses male pronouns in the books. That's all we know. And that he smokes cigars. Cigars, but uh, and he's he's
2: described as he's, the broad figure of Salver Hardin. He's a broad figure. He's
1: a broad figure. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Uh, Leah Harvey is not a broad figure figure, but uh-huh. it really doesn't matter. And Gail is Gale has no character at all. Gale is a mathematician from Synax, uh, which is a backwater planet. Planet, who comes to Trantor, uh, does a bit of touristy walking around and then accidentally gets blasted and exiled. Exiled, And um, a, Gale is an info dump. So I really don't mind making Gale a more interesting person simply because, or also Salva. The first story, Foundation, is also, it's, probably, it's the weakest story in the first book. Book because the uh, the the stories they adapted are really the weakest ones, because in foundation really let's say everything that happens is people sit around and talk and talk, and they're all male, which interestingly, I mean I read this as a teenage girl, but uh, it didn't bother bother me i I, ba- I was like, oh yes, they're all male, but I barely remembered this this probably because uh, we get, uh, I got Daw Wernaly, another interesting robot character, and Harry's wife first, because I started with Prelude, and then, of course, we get uh, Beta Darrell and Arcadia Darrell later on, so there were plenty of good women characters, and um, I don't mind it, but it's a, it's a weakest story. It's just people talking, talking. We'd still get lots, I mean, we still get, we got some of those characters. Louis the head encyclopedias, who um, is still a bit of a jerk in the, the series, but a much better character, but still true to the book. Lord Darwin is another guy who's also a much better character and oh also a, so the, the, the actor <laughs> the actor is the husband of Jodie Whittaker who's currently Doctor Who so yes Lord Dalvin is married to the Doctor which is fiction ah, yes, royalty
2: <laughs> that is interesting. wow Yeah, I I have to say a word about Dorwin. I I absolutely loved Lord Dorwin in the books. Uh, And like you're saying, all it was was talking. So at least Lord Dorwin had a speech impediment. You know, it was interesting. um, And I loved playing him. (laughs) He was so much (laughs) fun to play. And uh, the other thing that's missing from the series, and I kind of expected, it's it's fine, but um, I have... I, I just really enjoy the charm of all the tobacco usage in uh, the,
1: the series. Yeah, we won't get Which, the tobacco anymore. We won't no. get in inside.
2: Yeah, but, I was, uh, lo- I was, I was missing Lord Dorwin's snuff box. I, I really wanted that to make an appearance, but unfortunately, no.
1: Yeah, he could um, have pulled it out and um, done something yeah. with it. Uh, but okay, <laughs> when, we are missing the tobacco use. Uh, use also. Um, I actually liked. Uh, a Netrian, um representative in the book is a guy called Anselm Hout Roderick, who's very, yes. very arrogant, and, and a helps like aristocrat. And uh, I I like him because he's a pompous idiot. Idiot Farah isn't isn't interesting, but Farah is basically she's an insane fanatic. The actress seems she to Joel, I think, or was it the, the other seldom stars and podcast? She seems to be a lovely person, but um, Farah is an unlikable fanatic. Sorry, I just can't. She simply I don't like her at all. Sorry, she's, she's, I was glad actually when she was gone because Farah is just a terrible person. Person. no shade on the actress who's actually very good at playing this terrible woman. I
2: actually really liked Farah. <laughs> I mean,
0: I'm with Clara. I couldn't. I couldn't stand her. She had. She had a, she had a really foul disposition. She was arrogant. Uh, not that I enjoy seeing people killed, but uh, I was happy to see her get an arrow in in the neck. I mean, that was like the best best thing for her. But uh, but uh, you know, as far as Guayer is concerned. So in terms of what we're just saying, uh, not that Guayer needs our approval or or anyone's approval, but but in a way. Given the weak material that he had to work with, that should uh, result in him getting more credit for putting on such a good first season. And uh, on the other hand, when, when we get to the general and the mule, he better deliver because yeah. <laughs> if he somehow loses track there and puts in irrelevant things and change things, I, I'm going to recommend Joel's radio play of the mule that people listen to that rather than watch by the way joel's in terms of his voices he, joel does the mule i mean he's, he's really
2: uh good i did i did hire somebody to be beta which was yeah. a good idea i think yeah, uh, yeah. he was really good no, it's hard, it's hard. <laughs> Right, you
1: could have this could There are be- enough men and Azimov we can uh, we can if there's if there actually is a woman, it should probably be a female voice. <laughs>
2: yes, yeah. I, I, I actually did do uh Lysia the Comdora. Um uh, yeah, okay. merchant. But Princes, she's not really
1: that, yeah. she's
2: not really... <laughs> no, she was such a stereotype and it was yeah. <laughs> it was pretty easy to do her, but uh, that's the one that taught me now I need to get a woman for beta. I, I can't yeah. do it myself. No <laughs> and she has too many lines. you know she's too dominant in that story to,
1: The Comdora was doing. the only woman with a name, with a speaking line with lines and a name in the first uh, there's only two women in the first woman in the first book. one is a non talking servant girl who gets to model Glory Eulery, which my teenage said was like, "Oh my God, this is so amazing. I want one of those things, okay, maybe not with a nuclear reactor. I mean, I read this shortly after Chernobyl, which had a wonderful film adaptation staring none other than yeah, Harris, uh, Harris, and um, so of course nuclear power was. Oh my God, all those poor people are going to die of radiation. <laughs> and I'm glad that they got, they had to get rid of the nuclear power angle, which is really important in the books. Books simply because um, that wouldn't fly anymore. More and uh, of course they do have technological issues. Issues. Um, issues. Um, especially Anacreon has uh, apparently no metal and uh, almost no metal and. No, real technology um, Cespis seems to be a bit, a bit better off. So they have the technology issues. Issues. I want the one thing I missed, but maybe we get this in season two when they do brittle and settle. The second story is uh is a fake religion, which is, which was a thing I just loved in the books. That uh, the Foundation tricks them with the tricks the aggressive neighbors and sub subjugates them via a fake religion called scientism, where where they give them, oh, we give you all this cool technology. We are wonderful people. But uh, it's actually magic, our our technology, and you need priests. And But we will train priests, no problem. And, and it's, But we may get that because the character who is the high priest actually shows up in the first season as one of those cutesy kids who run around. He's pu- he's pulling very soft, and he's the foundation high priest in Brittle and Saddle. So maybe we will get that one.
2: Now they have Gale and uh salvor 138 years in the future. And but they they can't just drop all this stuff that's happening uh at Empire, can they? Or will they just handle this all in flashback? And <laughs> like you said with Polly Verisov, I hope we don't like he's just somebody's great grandfather or something in the next episode. I, I hope that's not the case. Cause I I really as soon as I saw him being introduced at the beginning as Polly, I Polly I can't wait uh, to see him grow up and be the the priest. Yeah. Uh, so I hope it happens.
1: Yeah, I want him as a. I want to see a grown up poly as a really uh, as a pompous high priest. I mean, uh, he curses. Uh, he curses a ship. He curses a battleship. A ship and then just basically disables it via a kill switch. And all the Nekrians are, oh my God, so sacred. And then they try to shoot. Uh, then they try to shoot Salva, and uh, it doesn't work, obviously, because he has one of those. And I love that they have those force fields, those person, even if only the Empire has them right now. Now, so yes, uh, yeah. So I hope we get to see that simply because it was an, as an angle. I loved at sixteen after having some run-ins, which is probably why I loved it with. Uh, with um, I was raised Lucerne and um, and also also still went to church on occasion at the time and had run-in with very hypocritical people who claimed to be very Christian. So yes, of course I. Left
2: that stuff up. The same kind of questions were occurring to me as a 15-year-old, and that book was just uh, just delicious for those reasons.
0: Yeah, I have to say, I mean, most of us have read the uh, series more than once. I I read it uh, when I was 12 years old and loved it. I then read it when I was in college, because I was taking a science fiction course and I wrote like my final paper on it. Uh, and then I read just the trilogy one more time. Uh, and at that point it was it had begun to expand uh, into the uh, sequels and prequels when my son was about 12 years old and and we would walk around the block and talk about it. Uh, so I'm looking forward to seeing you know what my grandsons you know think of it. I mean, and, and the series has that much staying power. J- just a couple of uh, concluding uh, thoughts. Uh, just a couple of points I, I I'd like to mention on this question of empire. What's going to happen you know to the to the dawn day dusk configuration? just to remind viewers who've seen the series, we don't know now the status of Dusk, right? Because I think the guy who basically breaks it today that he has been tampered with, and like first he says, you may have been tampered with, but then he says, you've been tampered with. My take on that Mm -hmm. is he knows he's been tampered with. He's afraid to say today that he's been tampered with. So Day definitely has been tampered with his DNA, I would predict that dusk has been tampered with. Also, we'll see that, but that will then change the nature of the whole clonal thing. And I think we'll be seeing these characters, even though, in again, in the novels in the series, obviously, the you know the the emperor becomes much less important, you know, as the story goes on to the point where the emperor is almost non-existent. I don't think that's going to quite happen in the uh, s- series. And then the other point I just want to make is, in all, well, actually two points. One, I just want to get in here that according to Asimov, he he, he makes a point of saying this in a very prominent way in his uh, autobiographies, and he wrote a bunch of them. He he says that it was John Campbell who came up with the ideas for moving the series forward. That Campbell said, you know, about the general, why, why don't you uh, have a situation where, you know, the foundation manages to overcome, you know, the best general in, in, in the uh, empire? And then after Asimov wrote that, he goes back to Campbell, and he, they're sitting in Campbell's messy office, even messier than mine. And Campbell, according to Asimov, says, "All right, now I'll write a story about there's some kind of mutation that arises that Seldon couldn't have possibly thought about." So I don't, I never talked to Asimov about that particular point, but uh, I can't imagine that Asimov would basically take credit away from himself. So I think we can probably assume that Campbell. Uh-huh. Just it right.
1: matches what we we know about Campbell. I mean, uh, don't know if, if you have read it. I know you've read it. Alec Nevala Lee's wonderful book, astounding, astounding about the history of astounding science fiction magazine and mm-hmm. Campbell, Asimov, Heinlein, and Elwin Hubbard. Which is yes, it should have won the Hugo, and I'm still furious that it didn't, <laughs> that it didn't win because it was simply the I best agree. book on the ballot. It was a it's an amazing book. Book if you haven't read it, read it, buy it. By it, it tell also tell me, and um he confirms that as gave that um Campbell gave his writers prompts. And also, if you look, a lot of those themes which show up in foundation show up elsewhere. The future history Heinlein has this. The fake religion, Gaza Darkness by Fritz Leiber, and also, well, manipulating religion is uh, is uh, by is um, less darkness false, which are also absolutely loved at 16 It's so wonderful will uh, stop the stupid Christians from ruining the wonderful Roman Empire. Empire, I'd learned Latin, so of course I loved the Roman Empire. Even though my ancestors kicked them out of northern Germany. <laughs> so, yeah, the battle at the Teutoburg Forest, which didn't happen at the Teutoburg Forest, happened like maybe, uh, well, 100 kilometers south of me. So, yes, might have been my ancestors who were involved. <laughs> involved, so, but I loved it, and... Um, it's uh, The mutant angle, there's um, uh, try to remember. I don't think they published, I don't think, Sl- I'm not sure if Slan was in, uh, was Slan in Astounding? Probably, I'm not sure really now, but um, um, the, the Wilma oh, Schiles, Children of the Atom by Wilma shires which is basically the X-Men, years before the X-Men, X-Men was um, in Astounding. So those were common themes, and probably different variations of prompts Campbell just throughout.
0: And then I just wanted to uh a, a, a defense of asimov he's often criticized for not giving women prominent roles he's actually criticized for like two related things not giving women prominent roles and there's no sex in his stories so um, uh, <laughs>
1: there's no sex in there's almost no sex in in Anything that uh, John, John Campbell and Kate Tarrant, his assistant editor, who apparently was the person who had issues with, the, mm. who, did, who cut out all the rude content. But, I mean, uh, Mellow has go likes fun basing in the news, with a male friend, or whatever his name is, and uh, they smoke cigars, of course they do, and put them in each other's mouth, and okay, that one is very, very Freudian, it's not, it, I can't imagine it's a cigar, and it was hilarious reading that again as an adult
2: and finally realizing what it meant. <laughs> well, that's a very good point. Go ahead, Joel. Yeah, can I say something about the uh, the women thing? Uh, in my fourth episode the Traders, I, I talked about this uh, about his uh, issues with women because there was also the the accusations of uh, groping yeah. uh, at his uh, and which were pretty well known. He was known as the man with a hundred hands, I think, uh, but. I wondered about the the why there were no women, and I thought, uh, um, you know, is he just anti, um, anti-women in some, case, in some way or just had issues, major issues? But when I read his um, autobiography, I was really kind of pleased to see his explanation for why he didn't have women in his first stories. And he said it was because uh, it, that women in pulp sci-fi at the time were always damsels in distress. Uh, and he just didn't want to clutter the story with that. And, and he couldn't, he didn't want to just repeat the trope that was common and he didn't have any other ideas on how to use women in his uh, stories. So, I
1: mean, he created but, Susan Calvin around even uh, Susan, right. I see, yeah, Susan P, P, actually Susan came before Foundation. Uh, right. Right? Yeah. yeah. Susan, Susan, Susan Calvin. Lia came. I mean, Susan and Lia is not the Susan we later get. Uh, Susan Calvin was a character I loved. She was exactly what my teenage self needed. He was a cool woman who didn't care about make-up boys and all those, all those uninteresting things. Who did science and created robots. And uh, he's a great character. Another one I really would love to see, uh, to see on TV. Maybe the Susan Calvin, Mike Donovan, and Gregory Powell show. Powell mm-hmm. robot problems. Show. That's another one I would love to see year at least the woman who did what's her name, Bridget Monahan or whatever her name is, she was also in blue blood. The woman who did Susan Calvin in the in the Will Smith film was pretty good actually. She was a good Susan, Susan, even if she had the wrong eye colour. The only thing we ever learn about Susan is her eye color. <laughs> well, so, her
0: eyes were blue, I think. Her eyes were blue. In,
1: yeah, uh, they were the color of liquid nitrogen. Oh, and uh, that really, that was, I went to my chemistry teacher and said, okay, what's the color? What does liquid nitrogen look like? And she said, like, it's white. And actually, you can't really see it because it, because it turns into vapor. And I thought, okay, like so very, very light blue. And uh, Bridget Monan is a very attractive woman, probably a bit too attractive for Susan, but. Um, but she's uh,
2: but she's dark-eyed. Did yeah. she have thin lips? <laughs> That's what I always remember about yeah. Susan, that she had thin lips. Yeah. Not, not exactly like a voluptuous kind of uh, yeah, description. She's, uh... I, 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 the,
0: I would say Beta Daryl, I don't know who in the whole foundation, uh, not only the trilogy, but the series, I don't know who could be considered a greater hero, maybe Harry, than 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 Beta, you know, in terms freezing of freezing up, Paul. Okay. Yeah, we're having
1: okay. a meeting. <laughs> how,
2: how, how about now? Better. Yeah, yeah, oh. that that's too bad because you froze there, and I really wanted to hear what you said about Beta. Uh, yeah. Yeah. All right, here we go. I don't I don't know who could be considered a a greater hero in the
0: Foundation saga than Beta Daryl. You know, in, in ter, you know, that that scene. Which again, Joel enacts so so beautifully. I mean, that was unbelievable. And you know, with her husband there not understanding exactly what's going on, and she explains it. <laughs> it was not only heroic; it was brilliant, uh, you know, on, on her part. And she saved the foundation. She saved humanity in that yeah. act. I I was
1: reacting. Joel Was I was, was reacting.
2: Uh, to uh, a lot of uh, what I'd been hearing online and like on on podcasts and things about Beta as like not that great a character and and, and I wanted to bring out what I thought was great about Beta in that in, and I really like worked at, and and in, I think Amanda the the actress that played her did it too right? you yeah, know she did a great job so I'm really yeah. thankful for her contribution. She did a really good job. All
0: right. Let's wrap this up. And uh, I hope you, our viewers and listeners, enjoyed this conversation. With any luck, we'll do this again next year after the second season and see where things have uh, developed. Uh, How about a final uh, comment from Cora and Joel, and then we'll say adios here. Cora?
1: Okay, well, um, I also hope that we'll get to see a um, great next season, next year, and we'll get to see Brittle and Saddle on the Mayas, as the story is uh, known in the book, uh, Book, and, uh, well, I hope they will at least go through the original trilogy. I don't need, necessarily need Edge and Earth, Foundation Earth, which I, Foundation Earth is the only one I don't like, <laughs> and... Um, and yes, uh, otherwise, um, yes, if you want to read my in-depth foundation reviews, uh, reviews, you can do so at uh, com, where I also review other um, sin- a lot of vintage science fiction, including some of the original Asimov stories and um, other TV shows and whatever comes to mind. Also, um, I'm a two-time Hugo finalist for Best Fan Writer. Right, uh, I would ask you to vote for me, but I can't anymore because voting closed last Friday. So now I'm sort of Schrodinger's Hugo finalist because we don't, because no one except for the Hugo administrator knows who's won yet. <laughs> yet. And uh, yes. So also you can find my books on wherever ebooks are sold.
2: Good luck with that. Oh. Uh, okay. So um, thank you for... I'm honored to be on this uh, chat with you two because uh, I'm really pleased. That one of the things that uh, one of my um, favorite podcasters, uh, Doug Metzger of Literature and History, uh, uh, told me once uh, is: you when you get a, a podcast that gets a, a, a listener base, you'll just be uh, so gratified with how many people, the interesting people you meet, and you know the kind of feedback you get. And it's so true. Uh, my life has been transformed by how many, the kind of people who have responded to uh, Selden crisis and, and uh, interacted with me in email and on Twitter. Uh, I just love the community that's come up around it and it's, it's wonderful. So I hope that continues. Um, I, um, I on a second uh, Cora's uh, uh reviews for foundation are just amazing. Even when I didn't agree with everything I, uh, with some things I I just loved the writing quality and the, the depth of thought that you put into it. Uh, so I really appreciate that. And I hope everybody, um, hope you get some more readers out of this. Uh, and I, I hope I get some more to- listeners for Seldom Crisis. So yeah. come and listen to Seldom Crisis and, and especially the last three episodes of The Mule. Um, uh, put a lot of effort into them. And uh, my, uh, my son is the video editor uh, and sound design person for that helps me. And he put a lot of work into the sound design. So um, I, I want to give a shout out to him, Jeremy McKinnon. Um, and uh, that's about all for me, I think. Looking forward to the next season.
0: Me too. Well, thanks to both of you. And I'll I'll just say to our listeners and viewers, you'll find links to all these uh, wonderful podcast and Cora's work on YouTube where the video will be placed. There'll also be an audio version on light on light through. If you want to listen to this, when you're driving, not a good idea to watch a video when you're driving, but listening to audio is good. And, um, I hope to see the other two of you next year. Uh, here in the United States. This is just two days before Thanksgiving. So happy Thanksgiving, everyone. Thanks, Joel, and Cora for joining us. Take care, everybody.
1: The Light on Light through podcast.
0: Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation between Cora Brulette, Joe McKinnon, and me. I'll be back here soon, not with a review of Foundation, because the second season won't be on the air until next year, late in the next year. But I'll certainly be back with a review soon of Invasion, the science fiction series also on Apple TV+, Plus, of Dexter, New Blood, which I think is off to a great start on Showtime. And I'll be reviewing... Peter Jackson's nine hour or even maybe longer documentary about the Beatles, about the making of their Let It Be album that is going to, I think it's going to be on Disney Plus starting this coming Thursday. And this coming Thursday, of course, is Thanksgiving here in the United States. So, to all of you in the United States, enjoy. For people around the world, enjoy whatever dinner you're going to be having. I'll be back here soon. And in the meantime, stay safe, stay sound, and yes, enjoy.